Um, as Chris said, we're going to take a small section of the book of Acts tonight from chapter 22 to 26. Um, so this is going to be a flyover at about 35,000 feet and uh, go quick, quickly over it. Uh, there is some, some uh, specific things at the end of the book that I want to make an emphasis about. But I want to remind everybody about the book of Acts. Um, the book of Acts is the second of two books. Uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are a pair written by the same author, written by Luke, the physician, who was a companion of Paul's. And uh, those two books stand together. Um, Luke, as a doctor, is writing with a purpose in writing the two volumes. And we're really going to see that in this last six chapters of, uh, of the book of Acts. Um, the book of Luke follows the life of Christ and uh, how Christ came from Galilee and moved towards Jerusalem. The book of Acts talks about the birth of the church and then the conversion of Paul and how Paul moved towards Rome. So you really have, and that's why I've, I've, I've titled this, From Jerusalem to Rome. Because in the book of Luke, we have Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. And then the book of Acts begins with the church in Jerusalem, in Acts 1.8, how it then spread out from Jerusalem outward. But we see at the end of the book how Paul specifically was moving from Jerusalem to Rome. And I think this was part of what Luke was attempting to do in his writing. Uh, the section we're dealing with tonight is his, what is called the fourth missionary journey. So we've looked at the times that he went into Turkey. And so we're going to go uh, now, and I want to just do a flyover of what happens between 22 and 28. And it begins down with Paul showing up in Jerusalem. And when Paul comes into Jerusalem, he is meeting, we, Luke tells about this, he meets with James. Now, James is the Lord's brother, and James is, the, is the, seen as the leader of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. You see that through the book of Acts in the whole dispute about can the Gentiles be believers without becoming Jews? And they go to Jerusalem, and they have that council in Jerusalem. And James, the brother of Jesus, is seen as the head, along with Peter, of the believers. When Paul comes back at this time, he is coming back from visiting the churches in Turkey. And he's bringing with him the offering he talks about in uh, 2 Corinthians. And his meeting with James is where he presents that offering. This is a poignant time. Because Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, is meeting James, the head of the Jewish Christian believers in Jerusalem, and he brings this gift from the Gentiles to the Jews. And uh, there's, there's some concern there that, that this gift is not going to be seen as um, by the, you know, something from the Gentiles trying to control the Jews, nor is there this, uh, the other side of the equation, are the Jews going to set specific 
rules on the Gentile gift coming to them. And James graciously receives it. And that's sort of a, okay, that went well. The Jews are receiving this from the Gentiles, that goes well. And then James turns around to Paul and says, Paul, um, since you're here, it will really go a long way if you join these group of guys that are going through this purification ceremony at the temple because Paul has become a lightning rod amongst the Jews. They look at Paul and they're really upset that he's somehow teaching against Judaism. Um, There is one interpretation, by the way, that people say that when Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh, uh, that God had sent a messenger to him. That word messenger, by the way, is everywhere else translated angel. And there is one interpretation that the thorn in the flesh for Paul was not a physical deformity. That it wasn't, his eyesight, we know, was failing. But one interpretation is is that Paul wasn't praying for this thorn in the flesh as a physical problem. The interpretation is, is that it seems that there was this angelic being that followed Paul around. And everywhere he went, there was nothing but trouble. It's rather amazing to think he can go into a town and in two days the entire city is trying to kill him. How does that happen? You know, how does one man walk into a place and we say, well, he was a preacher of the gospel. Yeah, but you have other places where the gospel gets preached and the whole town doesn't rise up in rebellion and want to stone him or kill him or whatever. It's like wherever Paul shows up, all hell breaks loose. And one interpretation is is that 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 messenger from God, this thorn in the flesh, is actually this demonic power that stirs up wherever Paul shows up. We're going to see that again. He's become this lightning rod. And so James says here, why don't you pay for these guys' purification? It'll look good to the Jews that you are not against the Jews. And by the way, Paul is not against the Jews. And so Paul goes down to the temple. And he shows up at the temple, and he's there just a a few hours when all of a sudden a group of guys go, oh, this is that guy that is the troublemaker, and he's probably brought Gentiles into the holy place. And this riot begins to form. And the people are angry and they're shouting and the commotion gets going and the Roman garrison is right there next to the temple and they hear the things going and they come out and they find the people screaming and yelling and wanting Paul killed. Again, amazing that he just shows up and he is a Jew, he's going through the process, he's fulfilling the Jewish obligations and the people are enraged at him. And then this, uh, this fellow, uh, Ly- uh, Lysias, who's the Roman leader, comes in, tries to figure out what's going on. The people are screaming, and he finally gets them to quiet down, and Paul says, I want to defend myself. So Paul begins, before his people, to defend himself. 
And he goes through his conversion and how he came to faith. And then he shares that God told him to go to the Gentiles. And immediately, there's a huge uproar. Away with him. Kill him. This man should be put to death. And the Romans then take him in and into the, you know, uh, the Roman garrison and go, what in the world is going on with you? And so Paul begins to explain this is a, this is a Jewish issue about Jesus and the, our view of this. And they go, well, you know, um, we need to help have you held and have a trial. And so it comes out that they're going to move from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, there along the coast, where they're going to have a trial for Paul. In the midst of that, word comes out from Paul's um, sister-in-law that they have heard of a plot that 40 Jews have taken a vow. They are not going to eat until they kill Paul. And their plan is, is that as they move him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, they're going to attack and they're going to take over the Romans and kill Paul because Paul has to die. Paul gets told this, sends his nephew in to speak to the Romans and say, this is the plot going on by the Jews over here. So Lysias, this Roman guy, says, okay, we'll leave at night and we'll leave at a time when nobody's aware of it And so they take a group of guys with Paul and move him up to Caesarea, where Paul is then put on trial. Lysias, this Roman guy, they do the trial, and they can't find anything wrong with Paul. But the Jews are screaming and shouting, and he's wavering as to whether he'll turn him over to the Jews or not, and Paul makes an appeal and says, I'm a Roman citizen, I want a trial in Rome. And so what ends up happening there is that he goes through several trials, through Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And these are um, from Jewish leaders to Roman leaders. Paul goes through these trials, and um, he's not found guilty. I'll show you that in a minute. They eventually say, good, we're taking you to Rome. And so they leave by ship from Sidon and follow along the coast to Myra, where they change ships, and they get on a ship that is a grain ship that's taking grain from Egypt, which was the breadbasket for, for, for the city of Rome, and they're going to take that, and they're right at the edge of the season where it's not wise to travel the Mediterranean. When you get into um, uh, late October in the Mediterranean in those days, all shipping stopped. The weather was so bad that they stopped traveling from late October to about February or March when the winds changed and then they could travel again. And this ship is trying to beat the odds. We're going to get to Rome with it. So they take off out of Myra, make good progress until they get out there to the tip and all of a sudden the wind changes. And now the wind starts blowing south. And so they're blown south to Crete. And they follow along the backside of Crete, the southern side of Crete, to avoid the winds, hoping that can we find a place to harbor through the winter. And they're right there at Salamane, and they think, um, you know, maybe we could get further on. And uh, they get to Fair Havens, and they get a good wind. And they think, maybe we can make it. 
And Paul, at that point, says, guys, don't go. Now, Paul is not a seaman. Paul has traveled a lot on the sea, but he tells these guys, this is not wise. Don't go. Paul actually gives them advice. And as sailors, taking the advice of a landlubber, they say, no, we've got good wind. We think we can make a better harbor. And so out they go from Fairhavens when the hurricane hits. And they get caught up in a really bad storm. And this is gale winds. From where you see Fairhavens to Malta, two weeks they're at sea. And they're at sea in this gale force. They have to lower the sails because it'll just tear their mast. And they're just driven along by the wind. The sailors do several things to save the boat. They run ropes around it to tie it together to keep it from falling apart. This is not a pleasant voyage. A three-hour cruise, you know, kind of thing. This is that kind of deal that, wow, you don't want to be in this. They, they, they jettison cargo. They get rid of all of the grain to keep the boat high in the water. There's 270 people on this boat. And they get to the point towards the end of this two weeks that they're going, we're doomed. And Paul has a vision. An angel visits him and tells him, nobody's going to die. You have to stay with the boat. And no one will die. So Paul announces to everybody, my God has told me through a vision, no one's going to die. We have to stay with the boat. As they get near Malta, they, they begin to hear the waves crashing on top of this. And the crew of the ship decides to make a run for it. They're going to drop the lifeboat, hop in it, and head for shore, and leave everybody on the ship to crash or whatever. And they recognize it, and Paul immediately says, if you guys leave, you won't live. And he says, I have been told in this vision, obviously through this whole time, the esteem of Paul has risen by the staff of the ship. So they cut the lifeboat loose, and they stay with the ship. And sure enough, in, a, in, a, in an hour or so, it runs aground. And I've got a, a slide of Malta. We'll go to the next slide. And if you look up in the upper left, it's, it's a place called St. Paul's Bay. And this is where, given the description in Acts, they believe that the ship ran aground off of that area. There's a reef out there. It's not far. And they tell everybody who can swim, jump in and swim to shore. The ones who can't swim, grab some wood and jump over and float on the wood and, you know, try and kick your way to shore. And they all come ashore and no one dies, all 270 of them. And they get there and there is a landowner, a large landowner there who sees them on the shore and they're trying to build a fire and there's this part of the story is they're throwing some sticks on the fire and Paul's helping and as he throws these sticks on the fire, this snake comes out of the, uh, the, the um, bundle of sticks and bites him on the wrist. And the locals go, ah, he's cursed. He survived the uh, crash at sea, but now he's going to die from being bitten by this viper. And they wait, and they wait a few hours, and nothing happens to Paul. 
And so then they change their story. This guy's got to be a god. You know, if he, if he gets bit, he's not dying. He's got to be a god. And Paul says, no, I'm not. And they then winter on this location in Malta past the bad sailing season. We can go back, Chris, to the previous one. We'll pick up in Malta. When the weather turns and it's good sailing, then up they go to Sicily, to Syracuse, to the boot of Italy, and up to Polani, which is up near Naples. The ship stops there, and then they walk the rest of the way into Rome. This is the fourth missionary journey, ending in chapter 28 with Paul arriving in Rome. So there's your overview. That's the six chapters. This is what happens. It's interesting that what Luke does with this. So I want to go to the next, to the slide beyond that. It's interesting, Luke says that Paul goes through five trials. His first trial is in front of the Jewish crowd at the temple. So that's in chapter 22. He tells, and that's the one I, I told you about. He goes through a second trial, which is down at Caesarea, chapter 23, where the Jews send up leaders from Jerusalem to argue with him, and he argues in front of the same Roman legionnaire, his position. That is followed by his third trial with Felix. So Felix is a uh, Jewish representative there. He has the trial with Felix. Felix says, I don't find anything wrong but Felix wants a bribe. So he's not going to, even though he's declared innocent, he's not released, he's waiting for a bribe. And then he has a fourth trial with Festus. Festus comes in, here's the thing. This is several years after he's been held and found not guilty, and then it's followed by the trial with Agrippa. So he has five trials. In every trial he's found not to be guilty. What's interesting is you go back to the, to the book of Luke and you find that there are five trials for Jesus. Jesus is first comes before Annas when he's taken out of the Garden of Eden. Annas holds him in trial. And then the second trial is they bring the whole Sanhedrin together. And he's held trial at night before the Sanhedrin, which is followed by in the morning he's taken before Pilate He has a trial before Pilate. Pilate can't find anything wrong with him, sends him over to Herod. He stands trial before Herod, nothing found guilty, back to Pilate in Matthew 27, and Jesus has his fifth trial. It's interesting. Luke points out that Paul, like Jesus, had five trials. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why in the world is Luke spending all this time with these trials before Jesus? I believe that Luke is writing the book of Luke to tell about Christ and to tell about the advance of the faith. And he knows he is writing it in the context of Paul going to Rome to stand trial. I think he's actually working out the legal papers to go, guess what? Paul has sat in trial before Roman and Jewish authorities and been found to not be guilty. And he's now going to Rome for that big trial, and we have the case law coming out here in this book. And I believe Luke is hitting at several things here. One is, 
Paul is being compared to what Jesus went through in other ways. This is fascinating. He, in, in telling the story, here are these comparisons. First one, that you, you get him. Paul stands before the people and they say, away with him. We don't want anything to do with this. He is rejected. It, there in Acts, it, it says at that point that when Paul was taken out of the temple, they actually closed the gate. And Luke reports that. It's sort of like the Jews went out of the house. We want nothing to do with you. But what was true of Jesus? He was rejected by his own people. We have no king but Caesar. Away with this man. Second thing that Paul brings out is that Paul is unjustly accused. You're bringing in people into the temple that are non-Jews. He hadn't brought any Gentiles into the temple. He was unjustly accused. Was Christ unjustly accused? Yes. Third, false testimony. When you go to Caesarea, they bring these guys up to give testimony before Paul. And just like the false testimony in front of Jesus, there is false testimony. The witnesses can't get their story straight. And they make false accusations. So both Paul and Jesus were falsely accused. Next one. When the Sanhedrin comes down and Paul is in front of them, he, doesn't, he, he says something and the chief priest is, instructs that Paul be struck in the face. Jesus was struck in the face the night of his trial. Both of them get smacked in the face. Next one. Um, they're both victims of a secret plot. So these 40 guys plot, we're going to kill him, we're going to do this. Jesus is a victim of a plot from you know, being uh, turned over in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they both are victims of plots. Next one. The mob yelling, away with him. Both mobs said, away. They were furious in anger and screaming, do away with this man. And then you start to see this that three times both guys are found not guilty by the Romans. And so in Acts 23, Lysias says, Paul, you haven't done anything worthy of death. Festus in Acts 25 says, Paul, I find nothing wrong with you. You are not guilty. Festus wants the bribe. He doesn't let him go, but he leaves him in prison. Agrippa, when he hears the thing, again says, this man has done nothing deserving of death. Luke, in chapter 23, in verse 4, Pilate says, You've not, this man has done nothing worthy of death. In chapter 23, verse 15, Pilate states again, Jesus has not done anything worthy of death. In Luke 23, 22, Pilate the third time says, he has not done anything worthy of death. Both men, three times, declared by the Romans to be innocent. It's so fascinating how Luke is writing this comparison of Paul to Christ. It strikes me that Paul talks a lot about how we get to partake in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul is an example of that, just like his master. 
he has suffered unjustly, found to be innocent, yet still imprisoned and put to death by Nero, just like his Lord. It's like Luke is writing this at so many different levels to show us what Paul is going through. And so this is such a fascinating segment of the book in this comparison about Paul with Christ and the the parallels that are going on there. I want to end with this. At the end of of Acts, in chapter 28, Chris, if you can go on on this one, Uh, in verse 23 of chapter 28, Paul now reaches Rome, and it says this, From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God, and he tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Paul gets to Rome, and he starts his evangelistic thread. This has been seen throughout the book of Acts. He always goes to the Jews first, which he does in Rome, calls the Jewish authorities in in this, and he tells them about the kingdom and about Jesus. The Jews are split. Some believe, some don't. They go off. But they, the final consensus amongst the Jews is, we're not interested. So Paul says, fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. And at the last of the verse, Paul in prison in Rome. Now, he's not in a cell. He's in a home. He uh, cannot leave, but people can come visit. What is he doing? He's boldly and without hindrance preaching the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus. You know, when we do evangelism, we always follow a pattern. I grew up amongst the navigators as a Christian, and the navigators taught us how to do evangelism. And they have a little illustration called the bridge illustration. And you talk about how we're separated from God and there's a chasm between us and the Christ on the cross has done what is required to allow us to come back to God and we can come. Everyone talks in a, some sort of system of explaining the gospel. What I find fascinating is how Paul does it. He preaches the kingdom. Uh, one of the struggles I have with us modern-day evangelicals is that we speak a lot about the cross of Christ, rightfully so, and his atonement, his sacrificial death for us. What we don't talk about is the kingdom. I ask kids at at, at school, why did God save you? I teach at a Christian school. So I've got kids coming from 70 different churches in town, all the different flavors within the Christian side. Why did God save us? All of them say, so we can go to heaven. And I have to ask, is that why God saved you? So he could take you to heaven? By the way, if that's true, why hasn't he taken you to heaven? Why has he left you in the cesspool? If the objective is to take you to heaven, you should pray the prayer and boom, he kills you and takes you away. That should be the, if, if, if the reason he died for you is to take you to heaven, he should be doing that. If not, um, this is a bait and switch. We're we're, we're being, you know, if if the purpose here is to take me to heaven and we're telling people that, 
and we're not going to heaven right now, then, by the way, we need to start telling people that. He's come to die for you to take you to heaven, but he won't do it now. You'll have to wait. And people are going to say, why wait? And you've got to come up with an answer. Going to heaven is a benefit of our being in the kingdom. It is not the end game. It is not what God is about. And this is why this is so interesting, that he's preaching the kingdom of God. We're talking about a king. So, you know, another way to ask the question that I ask is this. Why did Jesus come to the planet? Why did Jesus come to earth? And people say he came so that he could die for our sins. Absolutely, the scriptures tell us that. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost but I want to unpack that. What does it mean to be lost? And we all like to go to our sin because that's what we've emphasized about the cross and dying for our sin. Certainly we have sin. What is the nature of your sin? By the way, your sin is not primarily the bad things that you do as behaviors. That's the outward demonstration of your sin. At the core, what is the problem with us? The sin that is in us. What is that sin that we're to be rescued from? Well, gang, all of you that have children, see it. Your little ones. It'd be very instructive to go down to the nursery right now and sit in the nursery with these innocent children. They are innocent, by the way, of really doing moral, horrible things. They've, they've not gotten to that. But it's like finding Nemo with the seagulls. What are they all down there doing? Mine. Mine. Now that's mine. This belongs to me. Little Billy's got the truck. I want the truck. I go over and conk little Billy on the head and take the truck. Where do they learn that? You teach them that at home? Kids, this is what you do when you go to nursery. Somebody's got something you want. You take a stick and you bang them with it. And I'm going to embarrass my son right now. I'm giving you a heads up. When my son was about three years old, we were living in Kenya, and he conked a little kid in the neighborhood with a stick. And the little kid came running to me and said, Mr. O'Hare, your son hit me with a stick. And John was right with him. And I said, John, is that so? The thing I love about my son, this is a man who does not lie. He looked at me and said, yes, Dad, I hit him with a stick. <laughs> and I said, well, John, that's wrong. And you're going to apologize to him. And my little three-year-old son looked up at me and with steel in his eyes said, no. And I went, well, I'm, I'm a godly man. Where in the world does this come from? I've never, I say no all the time. And it's right in there. Proverbs says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And what is folly? Proverbs 28. He who trusts himself is a fool. You know what's bound up in us? We trust us. Even at the age of three. And your dad says this is a good thing to do. And little three-year-olds thinking through it and going, nope. 
That ain't right. That is not the best thing. The best thing for me is not to apologize as kid. And that is at the core of what our problem is. We make it all about us. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save the lost. Who are the lost? Those who are making it all about them. You know what our problem is? We're self-centered. We are driven by, I'm going to get things my way. Here's why I think the teaching of the kingdom is so important. If you tell people that all you need to do is pray a prayer and God will forgive your sins and take you to heaven, they can go, I'd love to do that. Jesus, come into my heart. And now I'm going to live my life however I want. Because Jesus has now wiped out any of the deal and now I can do whatever I want and when I die, I get to go to heaven. Mark 1. Jesus goes into a town and he he preaches and does miracles in the town and the town is stirred up. And that night, Jesus and the disciples sleep there and it says in Mark 1, early the next morning, Jesus goes out to pray. And while he's praying, the disciples come to him and they say, Lord, All of these people have showed up and we need to minister to them. And Jesus goes, no, we're not going back there. For this reason I have come that I might preach to the cities of Israel. Matthew tells us what he preached. The kingdom of God. Why did he come? To inaugurate his kingdom on earth. Yes, he came to die for us. But he came more than just doing that. He came to set up his kingdom. By the way, he's the king. And when he's the king, and he's the one in charge, in a kingdom, when the king says to do something, what do the people do? What the king says to do. And he came to inaugurate a kingdom that we might be People who move away from us being king. It's like I tell, like to tell the kids at school, there is a God, and you're not him. There is a God, by the way, and I'm not him. And the kingdom is about he's king. He's God. And what he says to do, I, as a subject of that kingdom, walk in that. So when Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he's going, life in the kingdom is better than life not in the kingdom. I I, I add to it, the great commission, go make disciples. The great commandment, love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength. Second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. You know what it takes to love people? You have to die to yourself. You cannot love if, you're, if, if, it's, if it's all about you. That's called lust. That's not love. And so Jesus says, if any man wants to be my disciple, he must do what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. What is life in the kingdom? We give up the throne. And we say, Jesus, you're king. And I'm doing what you say to do. And that is why you have come to save me from myself. 
Save me from my sins? Yes. You've paid for them. You've paid the penalty. I stand righteous before you. But it is more than just that. It's to make me a person who begins to learn to live in the kingdom. In John 18, Jesus is in front of Pilate. And Pilate says, you're, you're a king. And Jesus says, did you figure that out or did they tell you that? And then Jesus says this. He says, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world. That I might testify to what is true. Why did Jesus come to the planet? To proclaim to us what is true. Let me see. You want to know what's true? Who's going to tell us what's true? Christ. He came for that purpose, to tell us what's true. It's not my truth. It's, I got to find out, Lord, what are you saying? This is why I think it's so interesting, back to the other one, that Paul was telling them about the kingdom and teaching them about Jesus. What should we be proclaiming to people? A new era has begun. The kingdom of God is in our midst. It has begun. The reign of Christ has started. And as he says, by the way, when he ascended, as he ascends, that's an interesting word, Roman word, to ascend into heaven is the same word the Romans used when the emperor went to his throne. He ascended to his throne. Christ ascended to the throne. And you know what he said when he left? All authority in heaven and on earth is now given to me. Who has the authority? He does. He's king, and he has it all right now. And he is establishing his kingdom. He says, I am there until my enemies are made a footstool to my feet. Why are we still here? It's the advance of the kingdom of God. We are here to to bring the reign of Christ into the lives of people. To live kingdom life. And because we live in a world that is ruled, there's another kingdom here. That's why we're in a conflict. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. We're in a battle to advance that kingdom. And what is that kingdom's message? The message of love. And so that's why Jesus says, you're you're my disciples, love each other. If you love each other, everyone will know that you're my disciples. But to love well, I have to die to myself. And we all hate that. We don't want to die. We want to hang on. God, I've got a better idea. This is the way it needs to go, God. And so we'll argue with God. We'll tell him how he's wrong. We're going to argue. And really what God is after is that we might trust him to know what is right. So I, I go, go, go back. He came certainly to die for your sins, but that's not the only thing he came for. And we need to go far beyond that and not just focus on the fact of, I got my go to heaven free card. Now I can live however I want to. No, you can't. It is about living under the rule of our king. 
And if I'm not living under the rule of my king, then somebody needs to change. And it's not the king. It's us. And that's where repentance and forgiveness is found. That we can bow the knee and repent and turn. And God forgives and is gracious. Because that's the kingdom. Uh, Danny, you want to bring your team back up? One end with this. Luke is writing about going, Jesus going from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of the religious world for the Jews. And so Christ went to the center of the, the religious world. And Paul... Paul was on a journey to take the kingdom of God to the political economic center of the world. God is interested in his kingdom going to the whole world. And just as Jesus set his face like a flint for Jerusalem, Paul set his face like a flint to take the kingdom to Rome. And the book of Acts ends there. So what do we do? Let's start proclaiming the kingdom. There is a king. And he's not you. And if you run your life with you being king, you'll ruin your life. As Proverbs says, a man's folly ruins his life. Look at a ruined life. You know what you see? A fool. That's what folly does. Living on my terms will ruin my life. Folks, I'm not sure we believe that. I think we believe that we can figure it out and we can make life work the way we want it to. Rather than submit and go, I have no idea how to make my life work without Jesus. I need to be an apprentice to him and live as him as king under his rule, not under mine. Second, I think we need to teach people about Jesus. Because I think there's a whole lot of wrong teaching about what is not as true, what is not true about Christ. And teaching people about Jesus is not just with my mouth, it's with my life. Because guess what he did? He saved you to conform you to the image of his son. Romans 12. You know why, he's, why, he's, why he died for you? Was to conform you to the image of Christ, to make you a little Jesus. And that your life might reflect Christ to our world. So you can do it in speech or by life. But how do we teach people about Jesus? And so not ask, what would Jesus do? That isn't the question to ask. How would Jesus act? What does life in the kingdom look like? So those